And now our sermon text is from Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Listen to God's word. And they, that is the believers in Jerusalem, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor With all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thus far, the reading of God's word, the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need your help in understanding and in doing your word. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Today is a continuation or part two of a sermon series, two part series that I began two weeks ago on this passage at the end of Acts two. And so. On the one hand, I'm going to be assuming that most of you here have have heard that sermon, I'm going to be building on it. On the other hand, though, this can serve as a standalone. So if you missed that sermon, haven't got a chance to listen this sermon will still make sense. What does a spirit-filled church look like? That's the question that I posed two weeks ago. We want to be a church that is controlled and shaped by the Spirit of God. Then we need to have a clear vision of what a church looks like when it is filled with God. What does it mean to be A spirit-filled church. What does it look like when a church is permeated with the presence of the living God? Acts 2, 42-47 goes a long way in answering that question for us. This passage describes the very first church in church history. And what we see in this very first church is a body of believers who are devout. They are highly devoted. Verse 42 says, and they continued steadfastly in. Other translations say, and they devoted themselves to. That brings us to our first point. If you're following in the outline, a spirit-filled church continues steadfastly. In other words, it is devoted. The Christians in Jerusalem were characterized by their commitment. They were devout believers. They weren't Sunday-only Christians or church members. They weren't half-hearted about their faith. They didn't wish they were somewhere else when it was time to be at church. Their faith was not just another layer 
on the outer edges of a busy life. No, they were devoted. They were committed. Their hearts were in it. They were characterized by their commitment to Christ and to Christ's church, the body. Their, their faith, this, their new faith was right at the core of their entire life. Not just one day a week, but seven days a week. It wasn't on the outer edges. Is that how we are characterized at Christ the King Church? Is that how you are characterized? Are you known for being devoted to the things of the Lord? And that everything else is an outer layer of that. Is your whole life an outflowing of your Christian faith and your commitment to Jesus and his bride? Or is your faith one of those outer layers? Outer layers of a life that's characterized by a whole lot of other things. First, the Lord is looking for devoted Christians. These Christians in Jerusalem were devoted. The first thing they were devoted to, it says, was the apostles' doctrine. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Or the apostles' teaching, some translations say. Two weeks ago when I preached on this passage, I said that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit opened a new school. The 3,000 souls that were saved on that very first day and added to the 120 were enrolled into this school begun by the Holy Spirit. They became students of the Word of God And their teachers were the apostles and then the pastors that the apostles appointed. But they weren't just students of the scriptures. They were devoted students of scripture. They committed themselves to studying God's word. They got together every day, it says here, in one form or another, to hear God's word read, explained, taught, proclaimed, preached. Applied. And remember, they couldn't take the scriptures home with them to read. They didn't have personal Bibles. They didn't even have family Bibles, really. Many of them couldn't read. But that didn't stop them from learning the word of God, going to where they needed to go to hear it, to meditate on it, to discuss it, to fill their hearts and minds with it. Being devoted, they didn't pass up opportunities to go where the word of God was being taught and sung and prayed through. They wanted to be saturated with God and his word. They didn't pass up a meeting in someone's house where the new apostolic teachings were going to be explained to them, shown to them, applied to them. To their lives. They were hungry for God. Which means they were hungry for his word. Those two things go together. If you're not hungry for God's word. Then you're not hungry for God. If you say you're hungry for God. But you're not hungry for his word. There's a problem. They wanted it more than they could even get it. They would have loved to be in our situation. Imagine what these first Christians would have given. For a bound Bible. Imagine what they would have given 
for, com- for, the, for the complete teachings of the apostles. All in one place. All in one book that you can carry in your hand. Even put it in your pocket. They make them so small these days. That you can take home with you and read as a family. Imagine what they have, would have given to be able to hear the Bible read to them. On a phone. While they're going about their daily tasks. We need to make sure that we are at least as devoted to God's word. As the Jerusalem church was. Since we've been given so much more access to the Bible. To the apostolic teachings. Than they had. Not only do we have the Bible to carry around with us. But we also have the complete Bible, the complete revelation of God. We have the whole Bible. These people were hungry for God's revelation. What's he saying? What's new? What are the apostles teaching? What's going on in this new covenant? They want to understand the gospel and its implications. Well, we have it all. We have access to everything God has to say to his people. But do we have the same hunger for God's word that these early Christians had? The spirit of God was leading these first Christians to know God and to know God's word. That's what spirit filled Christians do. That's what spirit filled congregations do. They learn God's word. They figure out how to create opportunities to hear it, to learn it. To meditate on it. They saturate their hearts and their minds with Bible. They make it their goal to become a Christian who bleeds Bible. Remember John Bunyan from last week. Charles Spurgeon said he bled Bible. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to know the Word of God. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to know the Word of God. The church in Jerusalem was a learning church. And we must make sure we are a learning body. Make sure you are taking advantage of of the amazing access that you have to all of God's revelation. Second thing we see. Verse 42 mentions is fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship. Spirit-filled church is devoted to selfless, God-centered fellowship. The word fellowship is a translation of the Greek word that you've probably heard, koinonia. Koinonia refers to the church's shared life together. The fellowship of the saints is the shared life of the saints. The truly shared life. Koinonia is the life that God's saints live together. And Christian fellowship is the shared life of the church in two different senses. And we'll go over these briefly since I went over them extensively last time. First, fellowship is the church's common life with God. The fellowship of the saints, the koinonia that exists in the church is a supernatural fellowship. The church is not just a a human man-made club or organization. It's not just a social gathering. A human only type of thing. A natural institution. It is a supernatural fellowship. 
Because Christian fellowship is grounded in God. That's what makes it different from all the other groups and gatherings and get-togethers in the world. The fellowship of the saints is rooted in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's centered on God. It's directed toward God. It's powered by God. It revolves around God. Christian fellowship is from God and to God and for God. The communion of the saints, the koinonia of the saints, is communion first with God. The most important thing that we share in is the life of God. And so a spirit-filled church is one that is devoted to God. Second, fellowship is, biblical fellowship is the church's common life with one another. A spirit-filled church is one that is devoted to one another. The Holy Spirit led the, the first congregation to share their worldly goods with one another. Verses 44 and 45 say that these believers were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing them to everyone who had need. The early church members were committed to one another. Eventually, this commitment manifested itself in the sharing of food with needy widows. So much so that it gave rise to accusations of favoritism in Acts chapter 6. It just shows how much of this was going on. They took good care of their people, their widows, their poor and their needy. And these practical expressions of care for one another arose out of a common sense of identity. They were brothers and sisters. They they were members of the same family, the household of faith. And their shared life together was a powerful witness to all the other people living in Jerusalem. They were putting into practice what Paul later wrote in the book of Galatians. He summarized uh, the need to do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Of course, that starts with our household here, our local congregation, but it doesn't stop there. We live in a time when we get to know a lot about the needs of Christ's church throughout the whole world. And so we have great opportunity to give sacrificially to needy believers, not just in our town, not just in our state or our country or our continent but throughout the whole world. However we understand what was going on in Jerusalem, we must admit that the gospel made a difference in the way these Christians thought and lived and ordered their lives. We, we, we want to make sure we don't come to this passage and just have a defensive reaction where we have to explain it away. And our first thing is to say what, what it doesn't mean about how well it was voluntary. It's not mandatory. Those things are true. But if we stop there, maybe even if we start there, it shows that we're not willing to be challenged, convicted, changed by this passage, by this example that Luke is presenting to us. The gospel made a difference in the way these Christians lived. 
It made a difference on a day-to-day basis. It made difference in major financial decisions. They, did, they didn't just talk about giving sacrificially. They did it. Their household finances and their entire, entire way of life were altered by the demands of biblical Christian fellowship. The gospel called them to hold their possessions loosely. And it calls us to do the same. I dare say that we are far richer than they were. But these early Christians were not just devoted to one another's physical well-being. They were also devoted to one another's spiritual well-being. In fact, that came first. When they got together, their meetings were God-centered. They, they, they came together with a specific purpose. There was a spiritual focus to their gatherings. At least most of them. The ones Luke mentions here. They came together to worship God, to praise God, to talk about Jesus and the gospel and how it's changing their lives and changing the world. They came together to set their minds on things above and to connect with God. They connected with one another by connecting to God, the life of God. They went away from these meetings encouraged built up in their faith. One of the things I want to encourage us to do here at Christ the King Church is to make sure that we are engaging in this kind of deep, meaningful, Christ-centered, Bible-saturated fellowship with one another. Fellowship that is spiritually focused. There's nothing wrong with talking about politics and homeschool curricula or baseball or business, but we need to make sure that we are making time to talk with one another, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, about the things of the Lord. That has to be the top priority. We need to create opportunities in which we encourage and exhort our brothers and sisters, opportunities in which our brothers and sisters can encourage and exhort us. We need to be encouraged and we need to encourage. We need to be exhorted and we need to exhort. Hebrews says that as long as it's called the day, which means that's, that's every day, then exhort one another. Stir each other up to good works. We, we need to be maybe a little invasive into one another's lives. We need to ask maybe some awkward questions. We need to get personal. Not to be rude or not just to expose. That's not the point. The point is building each other up. Speaking the truth in love. Encouraging one another. Exhorting one another. Knowing and letting that person know that you need to be exhorted too. Not because you've arrived. Because you're better. We're not intentional intentional about this. We're not purposeful. It won't happen. We all know that by experience, right? The only way it will happen is if you devote yourself to it. They were these were they devoted themselves to these things. 
You don't devote yourself to it. That's a very, that's not a passive thing. It's a very active thing. You have to devote yourself to carving out time to sing and pray and talk about the scriptures with the saints. You need to be talking about your relationship with Jesus to other believers, with other believers. One of our goals here at Christ the King Church should should be to make it more normal. To talk with one another about spiritual things. Make it your aim to know more about someone else's walk with Christ. Make it your aim to let somebody else know more about your walk with Christ. The blessings that God has given you. The sweet time of fellowship, communion with God. The challenges that you're having. Where you're doing well. Where you're, where you're slacking. All those things need to be talked about. We can't do it on our own. We need one another. We need to get to know the sorrows and the joys and the trials and the temptations of one another, of our family members in the household of faith. Biblical fellowship means going deep with God, but it also means going deep with one another, indwelling one another. Even as God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell one another and indwell in us and we dwell in them, we should be dwelling in one another, living in one another, sharing our common life together. Biblical fellowship means sharing in the life of God. And that's an intentional thing. It means sharing in the life of one another, and that's an intentional thing. Koinonia means going below the surface with God and then going below the surface with the saints. Koinonia is not just connecting with one another. It's about connecting with one another in a way that puts Jesus right at the center. Right at the center of the relationship. We'll talk more about that in the 2.30 hour. Let's go to the next point. A spirit-filled church is devoted to worship. It's devoted to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and it's devoted to the prayers. When the church and Acts gathered together on the Lord's Day, they broke bread and they said their prayers. This means that they worshipped God by praying set prayers, common prayers, liturgical prayers, and by eating the Lord's Supper together. And that's what we do, too, every Lord's Day. Two weeks ago, I, when I preached on this passage, I encouraged everyone to be as devoted to Sunday worship as the early church was. When Luke says that they were devoted to worship, he's talking about a level of commitment that, that most modern Christians don't even think is possible, much less the goal or necessary. These people in Jerusalem never would have thought about skipping out on a gathering, on an assembly, on worship on the Lord's Day because they were tired or because they had planned something else instead during that time. No, Luke says they were devoted to worship. And the first reason you need to be at church, first reason 
you, you need to make church a priority every week is that you need what God only gives here. You need what God only gives here. God gives special grace to his people when they gather together on the first day of the week, as the early church did on the Lord's Day. It's called because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. When they gather together on the Lord's Day around his word and around his table. The called assembly is where you need to be every week. You can't get the same grace elsewhere. You can't get it in family worship or personal Bible study, though you do get grace there and you must do that as an outflowing of what we do here. But it's not the same. It's different grace. You can't get it watching or listening to church from your home. There is unique grace here. When we draw near, as Hebrews says, we draw near in the assembly. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says not to forsake that assembling together. It's special. The second reason you need to be at church is that you need us and we need you. We all we all need one another and we all need one another to be here. It's not the same when you're not here. When one of us decides not to come to church, everyone is affected at some level. Verse 43 says that fear came upon every soul. A spirit-filled church fears God. This wasn't bad fear. Even in the psalm that we prayed together, Psalm 130. In him, in God, there is the forgiveness of sins. Why? So that he may be feared. When we're forgiven, we fear God. That's a good thing. This, was, this is good fear. There's bad fear, but there's good fear. In the Bible, fearing God means showing reverence to God in response to your awe of him. When you are awed by God and that awe drives you to joyful reverence and worship and praise, then you are fearing God. Fearing God is a joyful thing for the believer. There's nothing better than to have your heart filled up with the fear of the Lord. Fearing God is what we get to do Forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We grow in the fear of the Lord as we appreciate more and more his his beauty, his awesomeness. Spend eternity growing in our joyful and trembling sense of God's awe. The fear of the Lord was one of the key ingredients, maybe the key ingredient that held it all together for this church in Jerusalem. If, if we ask what what did make it all hang together, what drove these believers to hold their possessions so loosely in a supernatural way? What drove them to meet together so often for prayer and Bible study and worship? What drove them to be so full of generosity and faith and praise and gladness 
and singleness of heart. The key ingredient is found in verse 43. The fear of God came upon every soul. It it pervaded them. Is that our experience? Is, Is every soul here filled with a joyful, trembling sense that you don't trifle with the living God? The God that these apostles are teaching about. The Jerusalem Christians did not think of God as an idea or a religious tradition. They thought of God as a stark, stunning, awesome, shocking, and delightfully fearful reality, person. For them, God was not impersonal or tame or silent or way off in the distance. How could an impersonal, tame, silent, distant God produce fear in every soul? We know that their fear was a joyful fear because verse 46 says that these early Christians ate their food with gladness. Spirit-filled church is full of gladness. It's full of the joy of the Lord. The church in Jerusalem was characterized by an overwhelming note of joy. You could see it on their faces. They were glad to be Christians. Glad to be saved. Early, earlier in chapter 2 of Acts, the 120 disciples were accused of being drunk. You remember? When the Spirit came upon them, thought they were drunk. We know that they weren't drunk. They hadn't been drinking, Peter says. What was really going on is that they were filled with the Spirit. And one of the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Spirit had filled them with gladness. They were glad because God was working in their midst in a new way. They were full of joy because they were experiencing the salvation that the Messiah had won for them. Verse 46 also says that their hearts were undivided. Their their faith was characterized by sincerity and simplicity, it says. Spirit-filled church is simple of heart. Verse 46 says that they ate not just with gladness, but with simplicity of heart. Some translations say sincerity of heart. The point is that their hearts were uncluttered, uncomplicated, undivided. Their lives were not complicated with competing priorities. They weren't too busy to do God's will. They had a singular focus. They lived for God. And there was a simplicity and a sincerity about their faith and their fellowship that is as beautiful as it is rare. Their lives really were centered on Jesus and his people. They really did put Christ and his church First, they they figured out how to do it. The spirit of God had cultivated in this first church 
the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord and simple hearts that were devoted wholly to the Lord. They loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you want what these believers had? It's possible. You can have it. We can have it now. There's nothing stopping you from uncluttering and uncomplicating and undividing your heart. There's nothing stopping you from being a simple-minded Christian with a sincere faith and a single-minded focus on Christ and His kingdom. There's nothing stopping you from finding your joy in the Lord, in His people, instead of continuing to search for it where it doesn't exist. Yet you keep thinking you're going to find it there where it doesn't exist. There's nothing stopping you from being in awe of God with a joyful trembling. Doesn't this appeal to you? Isn't this attractive? Don't you want to be a Christian who is devoted to the Lord, who is full of the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord? Are you tired of being sophisticated and making everything complicated? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just have a simple faith and a sincere faith like these Jerusalem Christians? Doesn't that seem attractive to you? It does to me. And it was attractive to the citizens in Jerusalem. Verse 47 says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. This way of life, this way of being the church, found them favor with all the other people, all the outsiders, the unbelievers in Jerusalem. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So a spirit-filled church reaches lost people for Christ. And it reaches lost people for Christ by being attractive to outsiders. The, the Jerusalem church's joy and simplicity of heart drew in the citizens of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was a, a smiling and simple church. A smiling and simple church. It was full of joy and full of simplicity of heart. The world does not need more Christians who are grumpy and complicated. It doesn't need believers who have developed sophisticated reasons for why they should be cranky. When the world looks at Christ the King Church... We need to make sure it sees a simple and smiling church. We need to be characterized by the fear of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, and simplicity of heart. And as we grow in these virtues, as we grow in these attitudes, these attitudes of Christ, we will have favor with more and more people. Of course, that doesn't mean we'll never receive criticism, that will come too. That will come along with it. But as we grow in these virtues, these attitudes, more and more people will look at us and say, I want that. I want what they have. I want that simplicity. I want that depth. 
I want what they've got. A spirit-filled church has favor with all people. And this favor is the means by which God sovereignly saves people and grows his church. It is the Lord who saves, no doubt about that, but the Lord saves people by raising up spirit-filled believers and spirit-filled congregations that attract unbelievers through their joy and through their vibrant worship and their hospitality and their simplicity. And so a spirit-filled church grows as the Lord's as the Lord adds to it those who are being saved. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. And so a spirit-filled church will be a missionary church. A spirit-filled church will be a missionary church. The book of Acts has one dominant, overriding, all-controlling theme. And this theme is the expansion of the faith through the witness of believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drives believers to witness. And from that witness are born new believers, new churches. The church is a missionary church created by a missionary spirit. And notice what verse 47 says about belonging to a church. It says that when the Lord saves people, he adds them to a church. He adds them to his church. When God saves someone, he adds them to a local community of believers. To be saved is to be added to the body of Christ. Those two things go together. To be saved is to become a faithful member of the bride of Christ. There's no other way to read verse 47, is there? When a man is saved, the Spirit drives him To church. Church attendance is the most basic fruit that the Spirit produces in those He saves. Church attendance is a fruit of salvation. I would say a necessary fruit. Ordinarily speaking, faithful Christians are faithful church attenders. When someone tells you that he is saved, but he insists that it's acceptable not to be a part of a church, a body with elders that meets regularly, has the Lord's Supper, does discipline. When he tells you that it's acceptable not not to be a part of, of a body like that, then take him to Acts 2 and ask him, To show you in scripture where church attendance stopped being a fruit of salvation. I know of no examples in the New Testament of Christians who are faithful Christians. But don't go to church regularly. The scripture knows of no Christians who are not a part of. Of the local assembly. A local church. Verse 47 teaches that when the Lord saves people. His spirit integrates them into a church body. To be saved is to be incorporated into the body of Christ. To be, to be saved is to be added 
to the church by the Lord to be added to the number of the of the people of God. The Lord does not save people without adding them to the church. The spirit does not save people without integrating them into the body. It was true for the very first believers, the very first church. It's true in the New Testament. It's true throughout church history. At no point did any of the fathers of our faith, the teachers of our faith, contradict this and say, no, it's not necessary. It's not important. It's true today. The Bible gives no reason to think otherwise. Church history gives no reason to think otherwise. The 120 followers of Christ were waiting for the Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost. Started with 120 people, became 3,120 on the first day. Later, a couple chapters later, it gone up to 5,000 in a short amount of time. But on the day of Pentecost, before all this happened, before they became a Spirit-filled church, they were waiting Jesus told them to wait. And so they were waiting. They didn't know exactly what they were waiting for, but they were waiting. But there's no need to wait for the Spirit to come now in the 21st century. The Holy Spirit did come on the day of Pentecost. And he has remained with his church the entire time. We... Christ the King Church are are a part of the legacy of what the Spirit began on that first Pentecost Sunday. Christ the King Church is a continuation of the church that was created by the Spirit nearly 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. We have the Spirit in fullness. We're not waiting on anything. We have everything we need. And in fact, we have more because we have the same spirit, the same measure of the spirit, but we have the entire word of God. So what's our response to this? What's our responsibility? What's our duty? Our duty is to allow this spirit. His freedom to avoid quenching him, to keep in step with him and avoid grieving him. Our duty is to fear God and to find our joy in him to cultivate simple, sincere hearts that attract outsiders. Our duty is to manifest biblical teaching, loving fellowship, living worship, ongoing evangelism, and outgoing evangelism. That's what it means to be a spirit-filled church. Let's pray and ask God to help us become more and more a spirit-filled church. Father, we thank you for your word that cuts to our heart. We thank you for your spirit who enables us to do your word. Help us here at Christ the, Christ the King Church to be conformed more and more into the image of our Savior Jesus, to become more like him as individuals and as families and as a body in our communities, in our homes, in this community where we worship. Help us to live out the gospel that has saved us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue.